0: Greetings, friends. I'm John Haspel. This is a Dharma talk from Cross River Meditation Center in Frenchtown, New Jersey. If you find benefit from this talk, please support the restoration, the preservation, and the presentation of the Buddha's Dharma with your donation at becoming-buddha.com. Thank you. Peace. So we're at uh, the third class of our 12th class class. Truth of Happiness Dhamma study, we do this every year at the beginning of the year for the last nine or ten years. Matt reminded me at their dinner the other night that this this is the tenth year anniversary for Cross River Meditation Center, so it's an auspicious year for us. Uh, I started teaching a couple of years before Matt and I met, but, uh, that was really the the beginning. Uh, it really got this whole thing going. Um... So we started our class with uh, establishing jhana as our meditation method. And the purpose for jhana is for deepening concentration so that we can hold in mind uh, mindfulness of the other seven factors of the Eightfold Path and use that deepening concentration to hold our mind in the present moment because it is in this present moment that the dhamma can be practiced. There's no dhamma uh, in the past and obviously there can be no dhamma in the future. That's all just speculation and projection. Uh, usually based on uh, poor memory and conditioned thinking. Uh, so, ne- neither one of those experiences are valuable or of value in describing our reality. Only this moment can be used and the quality of our mind in this moment. And that leads to what Matt taught uh, brilliantly last Tuesday uh, the, uh, the establishment of the four foundations of mindfulness as our jhana practice, but then. Uh, as we learned in the Sathbatana Sutta too, and we'll get deeper into this later in this course, and then how to apply that concentration to hold in mind the things that are um, significant to developing the Dhamma, but also to have the presence of mind, the concentration, to recognize what is not Dhamma practice and abandon that, to not cling to things that will no longer serve us and will only lead to continued eye-making. So now we're going to look at uh, today, the Four Noble Truths, uh, I, I am assuming every week, and all of our teachers are assuming every week, that you've all done your homework, uh, you've written out a paragraph or two about what you learned, and any questions you may have, and you've brought them to class. And if you haven't, please leave now. <laughs> um, all right, so I'm going to read uh, some of the chapter, none of our teachers are going to read the entire chapter, we're going to choose what we feel is most pertinent in the context of our study. So the Truth of Happiness study is meant as a companion guide to the larger volume, becoming Buddha, becoming awakened, Uh, and it's meant to be a thorough and comprehensive uh, establishment of the foundation for ongoing Dhamma practice. In other words, the Truth of Happiness is not supposed to be the end-all of our Dhamma practice. It's supposed to be the introduction, but a very uh, skillful and comprehensive introduction. Once we get through this course, uh, you will know uh, all the underlying themes of the Buddha's Dhamma, and you will have enough knowledge to apply that in an ongoing uh, in an ongoing manner as your Dhamma practice develops. And it's important to understand, um, and this sutta actually leads to this a little bit, uh, that there's no magic, uh, there's no magical thinking, and there's no magical acts or miracles in the Buddha's Dhamma. There is something called right effort, which is simply ongoing Dhamma practice within the prescribed framework. Uh, and so it is up to us whether we are going to develop the Dhamma to culmination, uh, which the Buddha describes that quality of mind uh, as an arahant of an awakened mind as calm or peaceful, a mind that is resting in equanimity, which is simply a balanced quality of mind. But it's not a um, it's not a static quality of mind, it's a dynamic vital, supple quality of mind that that allows for radical acceptance of what's occurring in this moment. And that leads to what the Buddha, the Buddha's very first declaration, the first noble truth is there is stress. Why is the Buddha making that the the key theme? You really could say it's the only theme because everything resolves in dukkha, in stress. So dukkha... There is dukkha, the first noble truth, means stress, discontent, disappointment, confusion, um, distraction. But it also means chasing after bliss and blissful experiences, because they are also a distraction and so contribute to, to stress and suffering. And this is a the stress and suffering that we're addressing in the Buddhist Dhamma is self-induced stress, rooted in ignorance of four noble truths that results in ongoing eye-making or conceit. Or another way of saying that is we, we take everything in life, beginning with ourselves, personally. So, so I'm starting about halfway through the chapter, if you're following me, but you don't need to. Um, getting right to the heart of the matter. And I'm not going to read the entire, uh, from here to the end either. By constantly seeking what brings pleasure and attempting to avoid that which is unpleasant, is to be constantly grasping after the impermanent and the transitory. All the things that we think are so important to acquire that we also use to build an identity, I'm going to get into that in just a, a few more lines, is impermanent and transitory. Yet we try to establish a permanent a permanent identity, and a permanent life based on that which is impermanent and transitory. We have seen that, again, previously in this chapter. We have seen that inherent in life there will be difficulties, disappointments, and unhappiness. All things in life change and all human beings are prone to sickness, aging, and eventually death. Why is that important? Because we tend to um, we tend to take these things personal, excuse me, such as sickness, certainly aging, and none of us, everybody is kind of a born, born with an inherent fear of death, as if the most important thing is to avoid that which can't be avoided, and many people live their whole lives. We're kind of caught up in that right now, all over the world, in in avoiding death at all costs, often at the expense of living what's living this life in this moment. Along the way, events will arise that will bring great pleasure and great disappointment. It is within this impermanent environment that we live our lives, and stress arises and passes away. It is also within this impermanent environment that stress and unhappiness can be let go of. And I, I could say it can only be let go of within this environment. In other words, we have to be here, present for our life, in order to recognize the stress that we're causing rooted in ignorance. And you could say, more accurately, I could say, in order to recognize the ignorance that's manifesting in my life in this moment, I have to have developed jhana meditation to a certain point. and it's not, it's not a... Uh, an extraordinary point, it's not an an elevated point, but it's simply beginning of practice, as my concentration is beginning to be established, I now have the ability to recognize ignorance arising in this moment, to recognize it and abandon it, in this moment. And the reason why am I saying this, why am I emphasizing this point? Because much of, um, much of my study of Understanding myself, and my, what, meaning uh, using the term self-awareness, and then leading into which was caught up in kind of just a generic New Age spiritual mentality, and then progressing to different schools of Buddhism. I was always looking for that practice to fix me, or to 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 be able to acquire something that I that wasn't inherent in me, that wasn't natural to me some type of power. A lot of modern Buddhism is taught that you know you're awakening when you have certain powers such as clairvoyance and you can recall all your past lives. Almost every modern tradition teaches that to some extent uh, and some level of importance where the Buddha in almost every teaching either directly or implies said any of that type of magical thinking must be recognized and abandoned. Awakening occurs in this human life in a mind united in its body, present in life as life occurs. A life of freedom and true happiness is possible for anyone. Again, there's nothing special about developing the Dhamma. It doesn't require any special teachers, any special um, uh, gods or divas looking after us. It doesn't take anything special except the specialness of a pure Dhamma practice. All that is required to gain freedom from dukkha, from stress, and to understand and integrate four noble truths is is beginning with understanding the truth of stress. Before we look at the origins of stress, look let's look at who or what is experiencing stress. So everybody experiences stress personally, that's the the basic problem. And so since we take it personal, it means that we are we are telling ourselves, we're tricking ourselves to thinking that we don't have any control over the stress in our lives. When the truth of the matter is that all the stress that we experience in our lives that we that we have a reaction to is because of taking it personal. That doesn't mean that birth, sickness, aging and death, not getting what we want or getting what is undesired will not occur to us. Those are noble truths. Why are they noble truths? Because they're taught that the, every one of these things occurred to every human being as a consequence of birth. As a consequence of having a human life, the first noble truth kicks in. There will be stress. And again, remember the Buddha doesn't just leave us there to say you're, just, you're, you're, you're human beings that are prone to stress, good luck. He tells us how to recognize, and this is the brilliance of this, this human being from 2,600 years ago. Nobody, could un, nobody understood this before or since, except those that have developed it. The nature of our contributions to stress, and so, distracting ourselves, excuse me, distracting ourselves out of this moment. Again, our minds are stuck in the past and from that past conditioning thrown into the future, and we're never living this life. And so we may live lives of 120 years, but never be present for one moment of it. But through jhana meditation, we unite our mind and our body and are able to deal with, effectively, the quality of our mind, our mindfulness. So mindfulness is its own modern religion. And we're taught that we should always be mindful of everything that's occurring. That's not what the Buddha taught. The Buddha taught that we should be mindful of, beginning with what Matt taught last week, we should be mindful of the four foundations of mindfulness and apply that mindfulness to the entire Eightfold Path. We have seen that the environment that stress arises is impermanent and ever-changing. We have identified the pervasiveness of stress within that environment. What is it that is subject to stress? That's the important point, isn't it? What is it that causes stress to arise? Ram, what is it? What is it that can bring an end to stress? Dharma teacher Ram, I'm asking.
1: The understanding of the arising of stress.
0: Yes, and where does that understanding arise? Of course, the answer is you and all human beings I'm being a little cute with you, Ram. We are the cause of stress due to ignorance that results in, in craving, clinging, desire, and aversion. We are. And that is one of the most powerful things that I ever understood. Because if I can get to that, that, per, that first acceptance, that's a hard one for most human beings to accept, that it is my own ignorance that is causing all the stress and suffering, all the confusion and discontent in my life. If I can accept that, then I'm going in the right direction. That's the beginning of Dharma practice, accepting my own ignorance. It's what the Buddha awakened to. It's so what he declared in dependent origination. From ignorance as a, cause, as a requisite condition comes fabrications or a corrupted way of looking at life. And from that fabricated or corrupted way of looking at life comes, through the, as the Buddha teaches us in the Twelve Links of, of Dependent Origination, all, in his words, translated words, all manner of stress and suffering. From ignorance of four noble truths, according to an awakened human being, comes all manner of stress and suffering. We can also bring the end of stress and suffering to our lives. First, we must understand what it is that constitutes this thing called me or self. Which makes sense, doesn't it? In order for me to develop any... In order for me to develop, develop any useful quality in me, I first have to understand what me is, what I am. In order for me to understand anything, in order for me to understand an apple, I have to understand what it is or it's not useful to me. I might think it's a baseball if I don't understand it. And I'll lose out on a lifetime of nutrition because I thought that nice red shiny thing is a baseball, not an apple. If I don't understand that it is my own ignorance that is causing all the stress and suffering in my life, how can I address it? That's what the Buddha seriously considered for two weeks approximately after his awakening. He understood the pervasiveness and the problem of ignorance within the human population. He just didn't yet understand how can I pierce the veil of ignorance that is common to every human being? How do I get past it? And that's how he developed an Eightfold Path, rooted in jhana meditation, because he realized that the the primary, the initial cause of ignorance resulting in stress is distraction. The Buddha could almost as accurately describe the first noble truth as there is distraction as saying there is stress because it is the preoccupation with dukkha in all its definitions that distracts us from this moment and distracts me from living my life. And so in that way, no matter what's occurring in my life, no matter how meaningful it might be, is lost due to the impermanence of my own way of thinking. Rooted in ignorance of four noble truths. What we view as self is nothing more than a personality acquired through experiencing all of the events in our lives and influenced by the environment we live in and the associations we have made. And everybody knows that. We're different from from the 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 um, the neighbor we grew up with because of the family. That's the initial difference, the the influence that we that our family. It's not a and it's not a that's not to put put a moral judgment on family influences. Sometimes it can be a hurtful influences. But everybody is a is a combination or a culmination in this moment of their life experiences beginning when they were born. So obviously our first influences are our family. And then as we move out into the world, a school starts influencing us. And look at what's going on today. And as we move out from school, then we we're, many people are... are uh, and can identify this. We're powerfully impacted by the first time we go out into the world. That's most people it's through college. And again, as we go through life, every single experience that we have conditions conditions us in a certain way that, that I'm describing here in this course. Unless we have gained control of our minds, and then we are in control of how and what we're influenced by. And if we gain control of our minds through the Dhamma. Then we are only influenced by the Dhamma. That's called liberation. That's called freedom. In the Vitaka Santana Sutta, the Buddha teaches the culmination of a wise Dhamma practice. practice. We gain the ability, the Buddha's words, to think what we want to think when we want to think it. That's the definition of having control of your own mind, which it seems today that that even the word control seems to be like a a dirty word. Uh, But it's the whole point, isn't it? It's my mind. Why wouldn't I want to have control of my own mind rather than giving it up to worldly entanglements or worldly events and Facebook and Twitter and whatever politics is going on in the world today and every and the endless thing or what my spouse might have said or the way my dog looked at me or the fact that I didn't get a promotion or an endless number of things that human beings experience in life that are dukkha unless I understand what they are and stop taking them personal. John? Yes. They, Would you say that the- First appearance of right view is
2: when someone realizes they
0: have a speck of dust in their eye. Yes. <clears throat> well said. What, what David just said, if you didn't hear, it, is, is isn't that the beginning of right view when you recognize for yourself that you are one of those that the Buddha said have a little dust in your eyes. When the Buddha awakened, I, to finish that story I started earlier, when he finally decided to get up off his cushion and start teaching what he knew, he, that was what he told himself, that if there was just those with a little speck of dust in their eyes, meaning they were, they were inclined towards understanding their own ignorance, then it would be worthwhile teaching. And so um, I've been teaching a l- about 12 years now, and if everyone that came to my class and were excited about what they heard here stayed, we'd be teaching right now in Madison Square Garden. So obviously I'm not. Right now there is about 12 people listening to this class. That's not a failure of the Dhamma. It relates back to what the Buddha said 2,600 years ago. It really is for those just with a little speck of dust in their eyes. It's not meant to be salvation. If it was, it would have to be for everyone, wouldn't it be? Wouldn't it? But the Buddha didn't see himself as a savior. He didn't see this Dhamma as salvific. He taught it for those with just a speck of dust in their eyes. That is an an ultimately impersonal way of, of teaching the Dhamma, isn't it? And think about that. Every influence that the Buddha has, has had as far as spiritual teachers during his time were teaching some form of salvation. And so it could be expected that a, another spiritual teacher, once they figured out anything they thought was worthwhile, would also feel that they had to be a savior along those same lines. But do, the Buddha realized that the, the first noble truth wasn't a lack of saviors. It was a, a, a lack of understanding. And so he didn't teach something salvific. He taught something that brought understanding. Thank you, David. This personality is typically identified as the ego. And we, 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 there's um, there's an entire field of medical science that is devoted to that word called the ego. And trying to apply... Um, qualities to the ego that makes it understandable to us. And some of those are useful. I'm I'm obviously talking about the field of psychology and psychiatry. There's great value in understanding that at the relative level. The Dhamma takes us beyond that, beyond that that, um, uh, palliative approach to the ego. And it also goes directly back to what the Buddha studied with Alara Kalama and Udeka Ramaputta, which was the recognition and the continued establishment of this thing called an ego in different ways. All of the modern Buddhist practices that I've studied in practice in my life, until I came across what the Buddha actually taught, did just that. They taught me a way of preserving my ego in all different realms and led to constant stress and confusion. The, the modern term for that is in most of modern Buddhism refers to this, the word anatta or translated to mean non-self or no-self meaning that there's no such thing as a self or that the self is this thing called the non-self. There's no there's no reality at all to a self. Where well, The Buddha taught something completely contradictory to that. He taught that all human beings are selves and they're individual selves. We're not part of some one grand cosmic Um, I don't want to say just cosmic consciousness a a cosmic organism and that's where most New Age thought and most modern Buddhist thought tries to resolve itself in this idea of nothingness, emptiness or a grand cosmic establishment where we're all part of this one grand mind the Buddha said that is nonsense when upon his awakening he realized the discreteness of human beings And in that way, I would call that understanding the discreteness of human beings, understanding the sacredness of what it means to be a human being, because that is the only way that we can gain full human maturity, by accepting who and what we are as individuals, with individual minds, whose liberty resolves in understanding what it means to be an individual human being. And then from that awakened, fully mature human mind we can then create a society that's rooted in true awakening and true understanding. You know, We went through the Age of Enlightenment. It didn't lead us to much yet. But maybe, maybe we are moving there. But maybe we're not. And that's not the point of what we do, and it's not the point of the Dhamma. The point of the Dhamma, you could say, is one of the most selfish things we could do, except it serves all of humanity. The point of the Dhamma is for me to awaken. The point of the Dhamma is for you to awaken through your own right efforts. Non-self is a term most often used in Buddhist terminology to signify the ego self or the ego personality. And it's interesting, that buying into that way of thinking is the ultimate in annihilation, isn't it? And again, it resolves in in one of the major schools in nothingness or emptiness. Again, where the Buddha taught exactly the opposite uh, opposite of that. The Buddha used the term non-self really, not self, to signify the impermanence and insubstantiality of the ego personality that is perceived as self. So the Buddha used a, a common term during his time, still used today, anatta. And again, anatta is usually translated and manipulated in a certain way to mean no self, or the, the, the word literally translates in, into I'm not atta, I'm not, I'm not the divine. But the Buddha used the term, again, much like he used the word karma, in an in an uncommon uncom- word during his time in an uncommon way. The Buddha used the word anatta to simply state that the views you hold of yourself do not constitute a self; they're wrong views. Let go of the views. But the Buddha never said let go of everything that has to do with the self. So that then you the. Uh, The the question that immediately would arise: Okay, then what is the self? And so we learn through Dharma practice that the self, an awakened self, a fully mature human being, is simply a reference point, an impersonal, dispassionate reference point to what is occurring. That's also called liberty. The common view of self is a wrong view, again wrong view to right view, when arising from an ego personality, and it is the ego personality that is constantly grasping after, and another, another aspect of grasping after is aversion to, and clinging to those things that it has identified as me or mine. The ego, or the, our acquired personality, is as impermanent as any other aspect of the environment. It's as impermanent as a car, a mountain, a flower, or anything else. And we all know how (laughs) impermanent our own ego personality is because our views, our feelings, our thoughts about ourselves and the world is constantly changing and constantly adapting with uh, an unnoticed but mild to sometimes very severe tension into becoming further ignorant or in this moment through an integrated Eightfold Path, to become awakened. Understanding of the Four Noble Truths gives us this ability. It is a point of fact that through insight gain, through jhana meditation, the ego personality will be seen as a constantly changing creation of your own views. As we begin to quiet our mind and unite our mind and our body, we gain the ability to see what we're doing to ourselves, thought by thought. And one of the reasons why I say that the only way that the Dhamma can be practiced is with great gentleness, is because of just that. Because we're always coming up against our own thoughts about ourselves. And that can be, it is the biggest challenge, but it can also be overwhelming to many people. And again, when that happens, the only thing we can do as Dhamma practitioners is continue to unite our mind and our body through jhana meditation, and continue with great gentleness with ourselves and the Dhamma practice. Not understanding the impermanence of the ego personality is ultimately the cause of all stress. Understanding brings the end to stress, disenchantment, and unhappiness. We have now defined three key key points of the course. The impermanence of all things, including our view of ourselves. The pervasiveness and unavoidable nature of stress. As a consequence of having a human life, there will be stress. So then the question is, what do we do with it? The ego self, as an impermanent personality formed by experience, I'm sorry, the ego self is an impermanent personality formed by experiences of environment and associations. And it's nothing more than that, those things. It's an acquisition. And it's an impermanent, insubstantial acquisition. The ego is only as strong as we say it is, or the power that we give it. That, in another word for that power would be clinging. In the uh, Paticca samuppada Sutta, the primary sutta on dependent origination, the seventh factor of that is clinging and man- maintaining. That follows contact. So contact with the world, through my mind rooted in ignorance, gives rise to craving for and clinging to the experiences that I'm describing as necessary to have or avoid. This is me. This is my ego personality. It has nothing to do with reality. It has everything to do with conditioning. Hmm. Those things that I just described are known as the three-linked characteristics. The original Pali language, they are anicca, dukkha, and anatom, or impermanent stress and the not-self characteristic. We will look deeper at these characteristics of existence in week 7, for now it is enough to know that it is a lack of knowledge or ignorance of who you are and an aversion to acknowledge the environment that you, that you exist in continues stress and unhappiness. So I'm going to stop there. Because that lays out the whole point of understanding Four Noble Truths. And it is ongoing dhamma practice. The so Four Noble Truths um, are not... And this kind of came up... Mateo would relate to this because he was at Thursday's class. Uh, the Four Noble Truths are not like a, uh, a college subject to listen to once, memorize what they are, and now you know Four Noble Truths. Like all things that how human beings learn, the first thing they, the, the first vehicle they use is their intellect. But with the Dhamma, we first learn through our intellect by listening to Dhamma classes, reading uh, the appropriate suttas, and then starting to integrate it in our, in our lives. That's when the Buddha is referring through the direct experience of the Dhamma is how the, 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 the Dhamma is designed to bring us to a direct experience of it, its, its own nature, a direct experience of understanding Dukkha. And that is understanding Four Noble Truths. So the Buddha awakened to dependent origination It states it is ignorance of Four Noble Truths that leads to all manner of stress and suffering, to all of the distraction and confusion and frustration in my life, to all the feelings that I'm not fulfilled, I'm not getting what I need out of life, I'm not safe. It's a big one today, isn't it? I need more, I need to be fixed, there's something wrong with me. Or even the, 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 uh, the, the, the basic physical judgments that we all apply to ourselves, we're not big enough, tall enough, short enough, skinny enough, whatever it might be. I don't have enough hair, I have too much hair. We're never satisfied. That's another word for dukkha. Ongoing dissatisfaction. Dissatisfaction. Is that a word? Dissatisfaction. Dissatisfaction. <laughs> Thank you. <Satisfaction. laughs> this old mind. Sometimes I can, I can almost feel it. just get crooked. It gets stuck there. <laughs> what was it? Um, it sounded good. But yeah, it sounded... And, and so we get stuck in those in those same views. And whatever that view is that I first established when the doctor first slapped me, and I think I slapped him back. I was born angry. <laughs> is is that view that just gets built upon moment after moment, thought after thought, unless something is is developed to interrupt that process. And so some people might say, well, wait a minute, where did it all start? That's the question you don't ask. Because the Buddha tells us where it started. Birth. As a consequence of having a human life, there will be stress. So as a con- the, the most important consequence of my life then must be understanding stress. If I'm, to, if I'm to take the words of an awakened human being, which I do, that the most important thing for me to understand about myself is stress, that's the first noble truth, then it leads to the second noble truth. That there is an origination to stress, that's the second noble truth. Which then opens my mind or points my mind in a direction, okay, well, what is it? And again, I learned through the Dhamma, through looking at the dependent origination, that it is craving for and clinging to views rooted in ignorance of self, a self-referential view of the world, that originate stress. But again, the Buddha doesn't leave us there. He says, what I think is the most important of the noble truths, because it allows us to, to strive for liberty and understanding, the cessation of stress is possible. That's impermanence. The third noble truth, you really could say all four noble truths point to and encapsulate impermanence because they're all all four noble truths have the movement of impermanence within them. But they also have the tension of impermanence within them. And the fourth noble truth is the truth of the path leading to the cessation of stress and suffering. That's it. I used to teach this in this way. I don't get so flowery in my teachings anymore, but I used to look at the Four Noble Truths as this this beautiful bejeweled box, and you open that, that beautiful bejeweled box and everything is in there, and it is, and that's not to be so simplistic, but if we take what the Buddha's taught as the culmination of the path, an unwavering calm, then we realize the value of understanding Four Noble Truths. Because I, I can still remember myself at 10, 12, 13, 14, 15, being terribly discontent, stuck in dukkha and not understanding why, because I had a pretty good life. I was brought up middle class. I never had to want for food or clothing or shelter. I could have wanted better brothers and sisters, but that's besides the point. But I was terribly discontent and I was terribly frustrated by my own discontent. In fact, I, in fact, I learned, that I was wrong to be frustrated about my discontent, and I acquired other things. I was brought up Roman Catholic. I was, I was, I was conditioned to believe that I was born with something called original thing, or original sin. I was screwed before I even got going. And again, I, as a as a young teenager, none of this made sense, and it led for me to act out in certain ways that. You know, people like me tend towards drug addiction and alcoholism. Other people do other things. They they move towards violence. They move towards shopping. They move towards sex. They move towards intellectual achievement, or they just move to things, to a lifetime of acquisition, getting the most coconuts and the, the biggest hut. All of it is a distraction away from my own stress of having a human life. I don't want to have it. I got to fix it. And since I know I got something, since there's something wrong with me. I need something to save me, and I've just lost my mind, and if if something doesn't come to interrupt that, this is what I I, I intuited, but I didn't understand it, unless something came to interrupt this, there was no way for me, this ignorant me, to understand it. And then, after years of study and practice and restoration, I understood what a Buddha taught. There is stress. There is a cause of stress. The cessation of stress is possible and there's this eight, Eightfold Path and that changed everything. That's Four Noble Truths. I like to go around the room and hear what you have to say. And also, if you relate this, the, 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 the structure of the Truth of Happiness is, I, I, could, have, I could have taught the, 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 12, the 12 weeks in any order, and it would be appropriate. But the structure is such that one week leads to the next, it leads to the next. So we learned that we, we, we established jhana meditation. We learned that we do it through four foundations of mindfulness. And now we learn how to apply it through understanding Four Noble Truths. Um, Becky, what do you think? Good morning. We can't hear you. Uh, Becky, could, uh, you're not. Uh, um, boy, I can't think today. Would you th- open your mic, please?
3: Yeah, no, you were you were Mute. still. You, now you're unmuted. Something else is going on. It's your
0: microphone or something. Yeah. All right, let's go back. Let's go to some. No, I don't. I, we can listen to Becky. We can intuit what she's saying. <laughs> Thank you, Becky. Matteo, how are you this morning?
4: All oh, good. Hi, everybody. Uh, I don't know, what I can say is just a, something to say more or less in the end, so like, it, it, it's not just important, on, you know, we read, we, 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 we listen, we hear a thousand times what is going to but it's really important to try our best, to have a right effort to integrate in our lives, so like, I, I think uh, reading, studying, and uh, repetition, and uh, listening to your guys is really, is really fundamental yeah. to build up the layers, yeah.
0: Yeah, thank you, Mateo. That that, that idea of, or the notion of repetition came up Thursday uh, in Thursday's class, and there's an awful lot of repetition, and that's how we learn the Dhamma. The, the Buddha said, I think it's Dhammapada. I forget. I think it's sixteen, where there's a line in there where the Buddha says, "Without repetition, there is no Dhamma." This is how he taught, and this is how we we, we learn. Uh, and you got the, You got the two different classes on Four Noble Truths this week, didn't you, Mateo? We'll we'll finish the other one next week. I'm glad you joined us. Um, Can you hear me now? Yes, there's Becky.
4: I fixed it.
0: I'm glad you did.
4: (laughs) Um, Well, I just wanted to say that I'm so happy to be going through this course again. And during my reading this week, I wrote down three thoughts that came from the reading. They're not my own thoughts but they're what jumped out at me. Who you think you are is all you think you are. Letting go of clinging means letting go of the need to have your ego personality's needs met. To a deluded, awkward mind, all objects, views, and ideas are self-referential.
3: So so. considering
4: (laughs) all of that... you try to work your way to an to becoming an impersonal reference point. And I think the thing that that has helped me the most to work toward that is the idea of not taking things personally. Mm. It just means that that idea when I when, when I'm at a spot where the rubber meets the road and I feel that if I just think don't take it personally you can view these things from a different perspective okay. in the moment but it's it takes a lot of practice and, and work to get there I mean it only happens once in a while but, but you can experience
0: it. Yeah, you, you do know when you're taking things personally now, don't you?
4: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: And yes. I would bet sometimes you say, "Ah, eh, okay, I'm going to take it personal. Yeah, I bet I do. Yeah, and, and again, that's just, that, all of that is Dhamma practice, the understanding mm-hmm. of it. And you, this is the recognition and the abandonment of ignorance, just as you describe it. Thank you, Becky. Brett, welcome to our Sangha. Yes, what do you think of today's class, your first class with us?
4: Well, I, I truly enjoyed it, and thank you for welcoming me. And uh, What really resonated with me was the idea of how we're born with this discontentment, and we don't know why. I, I When you were saying that, that story, that really was an interesting um, uh, application of dukkha, so to speak, of, of stress and that kind of thing. <laughs> 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 Excuse me. Like, it, 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 sometimes uh, maybe it was a stressful day, and there's times I look back and I say, Why was it stressful? You know, I'm in an air conditioned office with a coffee pot, refrigerator, yeah. with co workers I've known for 20 years. You know, why did he get so
0: bad? You know, and it, I start, you know, and uh, the idea that the can disrupt that, I think, is, is amazing. It really resonated with me. One that I'm going to be thinking about, I'm gonna be considering integrated. Uh, as it was said earlier, uh, through
4: habituation
3: or
0: repetition, whatever, whatever it is. Yeah. So, but thank you. Thank, yeah. you for thank you for joining us, Brett. Yeah, that's that's just how we do it, you know, it is it, through repetition and uh, understanding the foundation and then building on that. Um, I don't know how much time you spent on the website, but the meditation method uh, jhana that we use, there's uh, five to 45 minute guided jhana meditations on the website that you can download and listen to, um, I know you're doing other practices, but uh, if you're going to continue with the course with us, and I hope you do, uh, I would just suggest that you just use the, the guided jhana meditations for at least for this course, just to see if it works for you. The, 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 again, you, obviously, the only way you know if something's going to work is if you try it. And uh, again, I'm glad you joined us. Welcome to our Sangha. Good morning, Jen.
3: Hi John. Hi everybody. Hi Jen. Uh,
0: I'm a teacher, Jen.
3: Yay. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, I think the this week uh, my my bottom line um, phrase has been if you, um, in order to experience true happiness, I have to let go of. My views of happiness. Yeah. My views of
0: happiness. Yeah, because that just keeps that just keeps the craving going. <clears throat> you know, it should be said though. There's nothing <clears> that the, the Dhamma doesn't doesn't preclude relative or mundane happiness. Because the impi, the the implication could be, oh, we're not supposed to be relatively happy in the world. And that's that's just not true. We, we we take our comforts where we can as the saying goes but we also understand in this moment where i'm creating more stress by craving and clinging for things
3: i also feel like there's something that's coming through this time through that somehow did not um or has not come through before which is understanding Um, understanding stress (laughs) that sounds crazy (laughs) that like I've been through this course like seven times and I'm not but somehow focusing on the understanding Uh. true understanding somehow I don't know it's really um, coming through for me that even returning to the breath, the, 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 the purpose of returning to the breath and developing concentration is in order to develop understanding.
0: Yes. And that, that's and, your understanding I, yeah. stress at a much deeper level.
3: Yeah, and I, I, I even like l- listened to this talk from last year's, um, you know, the 2020 2021, Truth of Happiness, Noble Truths, just talk. And you actually responded to something that I said, understanding that I that I didn't hear even then, but I heard it this time. So
0: anyway, that's all. Yeah, thank you, Jen. Again, that, that's just how the Dhamma develops. You know, you've heard it so many times and now your level of, of understanding stress, the, the key theme of the Dhamma, Is deepened. It's just how it works. So thank you for proving the Dhamma again, Jen. Brian, good morning.
4: Morning, John. Uh on the the thread of understanding, I just realized my entire life has been well the entire life from the perspective of the ego has been nothing but a collection of incomplete
0: experiences. Yeah, that's right. Collection of reactions. Yep.
4: You're all relatively meaningless. And, and just understanding that, like how freeing that is. Like, okay. Yeah. And, and, how, could it, and how could it not be stressful if you don't understand that, right?
0: Because it's all incomplete. Yeah. And, and, and so you think your, your whole life, especially this moment, is incomplete. We even have phrases. We, we look for other people to complete ourselves. You know, or we look for meaning to complete ourselves. Yeah. When you, you can't be any more complete than you are right now. Your understanding might change, though. <laughs> Thank you, Brian. Good morning, Nina. Good morning.
3: Um,
4: what I keep thinking while reading this and listening to other people is like how much of my life I've spent avoiding the truth. <laughs> and um, everybody. Trying to fix things to make a different picture or outcome or make other people happy. So it's breaking it down this simple and starting to the beginning is like really, really eye opening.
0: Yeah. yeah. I feel it like
4: I'm like being brought to my knees a little bit.
0: <laughs> well, yeah, and, and that's, that's just what it, it does. It puts us in our place. I, the dollar, for the Dhamma to work, it has to put us in our place if we allow it, if we engage in the right effort. And again, that you're experiencing it this way because you're practicing the way it's intended. So I'm glad you joined us this morning, Nina. Yeah. How are you, Dustin? Good, how are you? Good. Thanks for asking.
3: Um, I just have two questions and I think one question might answer the other, but um, is there a such thing as a healthy ego? And Good if question. you're in the present
0: moment and you're fully present, ego exists? If you're in the present moment, does the ego exist? Wow. Um, let me ask, answer the first one. It, again, in relative terms, there obviously there's such a thing as a healthy ego and an unhealthy ego. And it's interesting enough that the, let me just use these words, the sicker an ego gets is because of the more self-centeredness of that person, isn't it? You know, we, we see it all the time. Um, and so I would say that when an ego the way we typically define an ego is active in our lives it's not a good thing it's not it's not skillful it's not conducive towards developing the dhamma although we just learned today that is within a person whose mind is stuck on from an egoic view that the dhamma is developed again okay, david even touched on that so even within that egoic view there's um, there can be a spark of understanding that would incline that mind towards awakening. What was the second question you asked, Dustin? I'm sorry. It was so long ago, I forgot it.
3: That when you're in the present moment and you're present with life, does the
0: ego exist? Like Oh, yeah, yeah. Programming, you know, like, is that, the, is that the key to not transcending the ego,
3: but sort of not allowing the ego to manipulate your life?
0: Yeah it's, it's, yeah, it's such an important question, and again, it points to your, you understand where you're going with this, or the question wouldn't even arise. And so I would say to an awakened human being, the ego, whether it is present or not, would be of no consequence. It simply wouldn't be ruled. There may be remnants, and there will be remnants of the ego self as a person works towards clearing their own mind. But it will also, and even Becky talked about this earlier, it will have an ever decreasing effect on us as we continue with Dhamma practice. It simply won't be as prevalent, it won't be prevalent today as it was yesterday as we continue with our Dhamma practice. And we're really gaining insight. Insight into Anatta is insight into the control our fabricated ego personality has had on us. So you could say that the goal of the Dhamma is to recognize and abandon that. Um, in the in the in the structure that we use and apply. So two great questions, Dustin. Thank you.
3: Present when you're clinging and craving, basically.
0: Yes, and you could accurately say it. it is the ego that craves for and clings to. It is the ego that Thank maintains you. itself, maintains ignorance. So there's no, in talking. Ultimately, it is when. When, as using the Buddha's words, when there's nothing left within me to provoke another moment rooted in ignorance, then there is nothing left within me to provoke an ego personality emerging in the world, because it's all fabricated. You know, what a what a great question! Thank you, thank you, Dustin. Brian, good morning. John, can I ask a oh, follow up question? Please, to that? please, please, please. Um,
3: the freeze. What we think of as a
0: self is not a self. It's anatta. Mm-hmm. Is that your words or the Buddha's words? <laughs> Sorry. I don't, if I, I don't know if I ever read it exactly like that. Okay. I, yeah, I, don't, I don't know if I, if I, I, I got to look into that. But that, that, would, that is what the Buddha is using. As he uses the word anatta, he's using it in that way. that The views we're holding of a self do not constitute a self. They're not a self. They're on top, right. like, so, Let go of the view. So views. I would think
3: of the ego as being the
0: views of yeah, our that's right. Set of self. Yep. So not that it still exists when you're awakened.
3: Yes. Like it might still exist, but you recognize it as not a self.
0: Yeah, yeah. In that way, it's a good way of putting it. The, the the ego self is the repository for all our ignorant views. They manifest <clears throat> that way. And good, I mean, when I was a kid, I was talking about when I was 13 or 14 years old, my ego self insisted that I play center field for the Yankees, even though I've never been taller than 5'8. I'm an inch or two shorter than that now. Um, but my ego personality insisted that I, in order for me to be truly successful, I needed to be the next Mickey Mantle. Mickey Mantle was a famous ball player. Um, of course, that's all a fabrication. It, you, you could say there's some value in it. I mean, some people use that to work hard and get to the major leagues. Um, but in me, it was mostly just a distraction. And, and it, and it u- was ultimately a disappointment when I came to the realization that, you know, I probably won't. You know, no matter how good I play, I'm not going to play center field for the Yankees. But I believe that it was almost my right to do that just because I decided it was. is
4: sort of
0: the distractions. Yeah. You know, again, David brings up the – and so all of that, David said, aren't the – uh, aren't the distractions the aggregates? Yeah. Our ongoing distraction with self manifests as the five clinging aggregates, form, feeling, perceptions, mental fabrications, and consciousness. That which the Buddha described as the ongoing personal experience of suffering, these five aggregates. Boy, great questions, great class. Brian? Um, I think you already
1: got me. I think you
0: want Mary. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> it's okay. I thought you might have something else. You always have something good to add. No, I'm good, thanks. <laughs> I'm gonna go home and see what happened to my memory. But hello, Mary. You can find them. If I could find it, yeah. Hello, John. Hello, everyone.
2: Really good class. Um, I think the understanding of the Four Noble Truths in the context of you know four foundations of mindfulness, uh, the Eightfold Path. Um, some of these other things is what makes the this your teachings john perhaps different um than other more modern approaches i don't know i've never studied any other uh form of buddhism but um the difference to me is um the context you know like yeah. we, we probably all know somebody who has a meditation practice uh or says they meditate and not taking anything away from that but for me the difference is that it's in the context of what the buddha taught and so it's much more of a guide to live your life it's not just about meditation it's what happens off the cushion as much as what happens on the cushion and i think that's um really critical um i was thinking as we were talking about the ego is that you know Very often when the ego is present, you're in fear or you're clinging or something. And those things are all pulling you into the future or pulling you into the past. And those things tell you right away that the, you know, ego is present. I think as far as it, I don't know, but I think as far as it being present in your present day life is probably what advises you to get out of the way of the moving train. Um, But after that, that that's probably not, you know... The ego um, is working, in, if it's a thing or, or whatever entity it is, it's trying to pull you out the present moment. Yeah. And it's trying to pull you into the past and pull you into the future. So those were my comments uh, on that. Um, I'm very grateful to be going through the program. And um, all of this is so foundational and uh, refreshing and um, empowering, right? To know, to, to have the experience. And, um, you know, congratulations, Nina. I think you had a little bit of a, yeah, a strong uh, breakthrough today that I recognized myself uh, the first time that happened to me, that feeling of being brought to your needs. But it is, it's, it's very freeing, and the weight gets lighter. Because now you're empowered to think what you want to think when you want to think it. So guided by the Four Noble Truths. So very powerful. And, you know, threading that needle all the way through for clarity is what's happening here in the Sangha for me. So thank you very much, everyone. Right.
0: Thank you, Mary. Thank you for, for your contribution today. Good morning, Lauren.
5: Good morning. Thank you for this teaching, John. Um I've, I don't know if it's this chapter or just where I am in my um, study, but I had so many questions reading this and, and hearing you talk. And um, I guess the thing that really first came to mind was um, how many different types of understanding there are. You know, the idea of understanding. Understanding, we say the word understanding so much. And... Um, Understanding impermanence—the the thought of, for instance, like the the people, my family and friends around me dying—brings me stress. So, like the understanding that they will be impermanent feels stressful. But that's like a mental understanding, right? That's just like I know my parents are going to die, for instance. Yep. But the rather than just having the awareness of that idea, but having almost like um a compassionate understanding like a a forgiveness of self for that clinging or being at ease with that understanding yes yes yes. feels like a relief right Mm -hmm. and anytime you say in our meditation to be at peace with your mind it feels like a sort of balm has been applied so any of the stress or or anything that comes up you you feel like okay i can be okay with this presence because it's not gonna
0: go away completely, right? Yeah, yeah. You get today's gold star because <laughs> that, that, that that, that's 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 practice. That's developing that refined mindfulness, and it and it's not just it's not a static state. It's not this state of everything is all rightness. Yeah, you know that that's a that's just another fabrication. It's in this moment, I I just heard that one of my parents is gonna die. I'm I'm distressed, but I don't need that myself my parent or anything else to be or god you know if i'm so inclined to be any different than it is and it it, i again i i I buried both of my parents um and i like they certainly weren't wonderful experiences to go through but they were wonderful because i was present for them and it really was both of them were they were about 10 years apart were just incredibly profound experiences because I didn't need them to be any different. You know, when I, I cried and you know, all the rest of it. But that, because it was appropriate. Even the Buddha, when the Buddha learned of his, that his dad was going to pass, he got up and walked 140 miles, so they say, you, know, you don't know, exactly 141, to be with his dad before he died. Some people who see the Dhamma as an indifferent or aloof practice, we'd say, well, why would you even do that? What's, what's the value in that? It's just another no-self, or not-self, or non-self. That's not how the Buddha saw himself or humanity. You know, he really did see the, the, the preciousness of a human life. And so he taught us, and we, you know, if we understand at a profound level that it's all gonna come to an end, then this moment, me awakening in this moment, becomes the most important thing, doesn't it? But I also learn through the Eightfold Path that I can't grasp after that. I can do just what you described, is recognize the present quality of mind. If it's not at a, um, an awakened level, if it's not free of tension, free of distraction, I simply accept it. That's the present quality of mind. That's the fourth foundation of mindfulness. And I'm back in my body. And so then no matter what's occurring, no matter how distressing, distressing it might be, I can stay present with it because I have control of my mind. Right. And that's all of life, isn't it? Because life is all of this. It's, it's incredibly horrible tragedies, and it's, and it's great accomplishments, and it's wonderful sunsets and beautiful babies, and awful arguments and terrible diseases. It's all part of life. And I can't live it unless I can, again, practice this radical acceptance of what's occurring. Which is really what the Buddha awakened to. He was the, the most accepting person married with true understanding that ever lived. And he taught us how to do the same. And that's what you just described, accepting yourself in that moment. Another. The last thing I'll say about that is that is an aspect of being gentle with yourself. Thank you, Lauren, for it a lot. I I'm sorry I have to open the story. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Uh, thanks. For oh, goodness. you Thank got to go. I'm Thank glad you. you joined us. Thanks, I'll see it's you your See you soon. Thank
1: you.
0: Yeah, I have to meet too. I'll see you Tuesday. I'm probably going to Zoom in on Tuesday. Okay. For the teachers' yeah. meeting. Yeah, teachers' meeting at 6 on Tuesday? 6
3: on Tuesday. Me, okay. too. I'm going to Zoom in, too.
0: Okay, good, 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 good. Zero. Good morning, Adam.
1: Good morning, John. <coughs> um, so w- what both uh, all of Nina, Mary, and Lauren were saying really resonated with me today, um, and i also want to say, anyone who's new to the course this year, this is my second time through. There's a tremendous value in doing it annually, um, which I didn't recognize before. And it really is um, fantastically useful. And I'm sure it's true of the other, other courses that have happened throughout the year. But um, Because what I recognized is, last year, the first time hearing it, it was a, it was a sense of relief hearing that you know um, there's there's a, there's a self or whatever Whatever a self that is the, the one meditating and the one who's you know who, who who can realize liberation and understanding and things like that. Whereas, like you, John, I'd come from a modern Buddhist uh, tradition that said there's no self, there's nothing, you yep. know, nothing there at all, yep. which I could not get my head around. And it turns out it just a Bible. Yeah. And so last year the great relief was learning like okay that's a lot of that's a lot of hooey. This year, um, what I'm getting out of it is uh, learning or getting an understanding of the idea of this not self, this accumulating, acquiring um, habit, um, yeah. that has been uh, very profound to me. And I'm now seeing the connections between those acquisitions and the clinging and craving that they cause, and you know that the, the you know the root of the four noble truths. And, uh,
0: thank you. Thank you again. That's great inc- insight. And it points to the word aggregate, the five clinging aggregates. It's the composition of all these things that we've attached ourselves to and become. You know, this is this is what I've become. The average human being can only become further ignorant because they don't have this framework to understand what's occurring in life. And again, the question of, well, how come we don't understand it? Why aren't we taught this? Those are the questions we don't answer because they're foolish questions. It's what's occurring. It's what's occurring. And again, the four noble truths—they don't have to be the, the the grandest truths in the universe. I think they are, but they don't have to be. They're not. They're, they're again, if 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 they had, if they were presented that way, they would be, then be salvific. Everybody must understand this. No. And Again, I we learned through what how the Buddha taught that this not everybody's going to do it. The validity of the dhamma is not in the numbers. It's in the experience. Come and see for yourself. Then we, then we, then we know. We know for ourselves. And as I've said before, we're not in Madison Square Garden. So many people have found that this isn't for them. That's great. I mean, it's not great. It doesn't. It, it's not a reflection on another human being, one way or the other. It doesn't. It doesn't devalue a human being because they don't understand four noble truths. But it enhances this human being's life to understand it. And that's the important point. Again, any other questions or comments before we finish with Meta? David. <laughs> David, I'm sorry. You sure? Yeah, yeah. I didn't mean to discount. Me. <laughs> Boy, I don't know. I need more sleep, maybe. I need better concentration. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well we're gonna we're gonna continue uh, with uh, Tuesday we're gonna begin a three-class study of uh, the Eightfold Path separated by the wisdom um, mindful of the uh, virtuous factors and the uh, concentration factors. Ram will be teaching Tuesday's class, uh, but we will finish with metta, as we always do. If I can find it. So again, take a moment to become mindful of your in-breath and your out-breath and let that mindfulness of your breath unite your mind and your body. And these are the Buddha's words on metta from the Karaniya Metta Sutta. Whatever living beings there may be, whether they are weak or strong, admitting none, the great or the mighty, medium, short, or small, the seen and the unseen, those living near and far away, those born and to be born, may all beings be at ease. Let none deceive another or despise any being in any state. Let none through anger or ill will wish harm upon another. Even as a mother protects with her life her child her only child, so with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings. Radiating kindness over the entire world, spreading upwards to the skies and downwards to the depths, outwards and unbounded, freed from hatred and ill will. Whether standing or walking, seated or lying down, free from drowsiness, one should sustain this recollection. This is said to be the sublime of Bible. By not holding to fixed views, the pure-hearted one, having clarity of vision, Being freed from all sense desires is not born again into this world. Thank you all for a wonderful class today. Thank you you for listening. I rely on donations to support the continued restoration, preservation, and presentation of the Buddha's Dhamma. If you find benefit here, please consider a donation at becoming-buddha.com. Thank you. Peace.